This is uh, ordinary Christian growth for ordinary Christians, so if we're in the wrong place, it's too late. The doors are locked, like I say, on Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Ed. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be a church planter in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, if some of you are at the point of your life where you're just looking for some direction, you're wanting to know what the Lord is calling you to, I'm here to tell you you need to move to Champaign and help us plant a church. Uh, and we can talk about that later. You can buy me lunch and I'd love to have that conversation with you. Well, let's get started here as we consider uh, the ways and the means of ordinary Christian growth. I'm just going to read a couple of verses uh, from the Song of Songs and then we will pray and kick off together. Song of Songs chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. Tell me you whom my soul loves where you pasture your flock where you make it lie down at noon for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. The prince and the two children were standing with their heads hung down, their cheeks flushed, their eyes half closed, the strength almost gone from them. The enchantment was almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would have hurt a human, for his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. And three things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less. For although the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had. And what remained smelled very largely of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not a very enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brains clearer. The prince and the children lifted up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, utterly different, from all the sweet tones she had been using up until now, called out, What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. Thirdly, the pain itself made Puddle Glum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word, all you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who likes to know the worst and then put the best face on it I can, so I won't deny anything of what you've said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case, the made-up world seems a good deal more important than the real one. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty, a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. If we're just children playing a game, if you're right, uh, but these four children playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. 
I'm going to live like a Narnian, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thank you for your supper. And if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, uh, we're leaving your call at once and setting out in the dark to spend the rest of our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will last very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. This session is Ordinary Christianity for Ordinary Christians, Ordinary Growth for Ordinary Christians. So why start with a quote from The Silver Chair, part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? Well, because most of us, to a greater or lesser extent, spend our lives under the same sort of enchantment that the three main characters, Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum, found themselves under. We live in a secular age. Our secular age exists to lull us to sleep. Our secular age tries to convince us that the world is just stuff. Our secular age tries to convince us that it's nighttime when all it's done is close the curtains. God has given us great gifts to remind us of reality. We call those gifts the means of grace. The means of grace are Bible reading, preaching, church attendance, communion and feet washing, baptism. And we're going to talk about all those things in this session. And we're going to talk about how they wake us up from the enchantment of our godless secular age. The means of grace are gifts that remind us of reality. The means of grace are gifts to lead us into worship. Philosopher James Smith says, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. Worship is where God is doing something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. I wonder if that's one of the great challenges of the Christian life today. I wonder if one of the great challenges of the Christian life today is being content with the ordinary ways that God has given us to grow. I wonder if one of the challenges of the Christian life today is being content with ordinary life, ordinary spiritual life, and ordinary growth. We live in an age that isn't really interested in ordinary things, don't we? Social media has made everything into a performance. I tell Rachel regularly, I'm so glad we got married before every stage of our engagement and marriage and everything had to be curated and created and posted. I'm glad I got through high school 
before asking a girl to prom took more effort than I put into asking Rachel to marry me. Isn't she lucky? <laughs> but we like emotional highs and big experiences. And we probably, if we're being honest, have to admit that this has changed the way we view the Christian life. This has changed the way we view gathered worship. We used to just have youth groups that looked like pep rallies. Well, now all those kids have grown up and we've got churches that look like pep rallies. But for all the excitement, for all the noise, for all the activity, it's very hard to argue that the American church is making a difference to the life of the average American. Bridge Church in Champaign, Illinois, exists to make the real Jesus impossible to ignore in Champaign and beyond. Champaign's a great place to live, but it is perilously easy to live and work and die in Champaign never having heard of the claims of the real Jesus. And we exist to change that. Ordinary growth for ordinary Christians. I wanted to call it boring growth for ordinary Christians, but you really can't get away with that sort of thing in America. But the Christian life is ordinary, not extraordinary. Normal, not Instagrammable. Routine, not glamorous. And I want to argue that the Bible tells us that this is a feature, not a bug. This is what Christian growth looks like, rather than being a hindrance to it. I think church services are like meals. I've forgotten almost every meal I've ever had, but as you can tell, they've all done me good. I remember the meal I had before I asked Rachel to marry me. I remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Apart from that, it's a little bit hazy. Church services are like meals. We, we might forget almost every message we've ever heard. I must have heard 10,000 sermons, and, and only really two of them stand out in my mind. I'll never forget Andy Shuttle preaching on Galatians chapter 5 at a student leadership conference when I was in college. I'll never forget Dane Ortland preaching on 2 Timothy chapter 4. I heard him speak last year. I've, nearly for, I've forgotten nearly every message I've ever heard, but they've all done me good. Now, we don't expect our meals to be one thrilling experience after another. If you're not married yet, it's a good thing to nail that down before you get married. We... we we don't expect our meals to be one thrilling experience after another. So we shouldn't expect our Christian life to be one thrilling experience after another. Life isn't like that. And that's okay. Like you, I've often thought, man, I, I wish I could have lived in the Old Testament to see all those amazing things. I wish I could have walked around behind Moses during the Exodus. But, but the truth is, our lives aren't much like Exodus. They're, they're more like Ruth. 
or maybe the first part of Daniel is the best example. Now, the first part of Daniel is, is, is filled with thrilling, exciting, not ordinary things. And we tend to think of Daniel interprets the dream on Monday, Daniel's in the lines then on Tuesday, Daniel refuses to bow to the statue on Wednesday, then it's the fiery furnace on Thursday, because that, that's how we read it. But those events took place over almost the course of Israel's entire exile. Every extraordinary thing Daniel and his friends did was the result of ordinary faith and ordinary growth. And if we want to do extraordinary things, we must start by doing ordinary things. If we want to be faithful in much, we, want, we must be faithful in little. Spurgeon says... If you are with God in the prayer room, he'll be with you in the lion's den. We need ordinary, daily spirituality if we are to be faithful to Jesus. So here's the good news. The good news is that God is the greatest giver. And God has given us sustainable, ordinary, daily ways to develop our faith in him he's given us ways to grow and ways to measure that growth as we said earlier he's given us the means of grace the bible faithfully preached and systematically read communion and feet washing baptism and prayer we need to remember that these are great gifts from God. We need to recover their role in ordinary Christian discipleship and we need to rest in God's way of doing God's work. We need to remember these are great gifts from God, recover their role in our lives and rest in God's way of doing God's work. In his book, The Secret Place of Thunder, John Stark quotes Annie Dillard, who says, quote, If the end of human life is knowledge of God, then these habits are the means in which the conditions operate. You don't have to sit outside in the dark, but if you want to see the stars, darkness is necessary. End quote. Going outside in the dark doesn't make the stars appear, but if you want to see the stars, you have to go outside in the dark. The means of grace aren't ways to manipulate God's appearance, but if you want to meet with God, you will use the means of grace. So what are they? Well, let, let, let me give you a dozen or so definitions and thoughts and applications, and, and we'll only have time to unpack some of them, but hopefully all of them will help us think through the importance of God's way of growth, the importance of the means of grace in our lives and ministry. So the means of grace are the ordinary ways in which God gives himself to the church. The means of grace stop us separating the offer of Christ from the offer of Christ's 
benefits. The means of grace are the ways in which the Lord Jesus provides, creates, produces authentic spirituality in his people. The means of grace spiritually sustain us. The means of grace break the spell of our secular world. The means of grace remind us that our salvation is outside of us. The means of grace teach us that our faith is tangible and objective. The means of grace teach us that our faith is spiritual and personal. The means of grace are the only way we can be sure that our Christian growth is biblical. The means of grace are the only way we can be sure our churches are biblical. The means of grace remind us that God is the greatest giver. The means of grace teach us to be dependent. The means of grace help us to reject modernity. And we need that because we're very good at rejecting post-modernity. We're not always as good at rejecting modernity. The means of grace remind us that all our longings will be fulfilled. The means of grace remind us that our faith is personal. The means of grace remind us that our faith is corporate. The means of grace are the most biblical form of discipleship. The means of grace teach us that church attendance is a gift. When your phone goes off, pastors, on Sunday morning, and that person isn't coming to church again, you just want to shake your phone, right? Well, really, you want to shake him, but you just want to <laughs> shake your phone. But, but it's the means of grace that teach us that church attendance is a gift. The means of grace answer the question, why should I bother coming to church? Why should I bother coming to church? Fundamentally, the means of grace remind us that there's no such thing as grace. What we call grace is simply the power and presence of the Lord Jesus made manifest in our hearts and lives. Well, these are gifts from God. So what is their role in Christian life and growth? What is the role of the means of grace in Christian discipleship? Well, let's think about preaching first. Preaching, according to H.B. Charles Jr., is the man of God taking the word of God to make the people of God look like the son of God. I love that. Preaching is the man of God taking the word of God to make the people of God look like the son of God of God. Friends, you know this because you're here, but we must listen to the word preached. Preaching is out of season at the moment. Ministering in a college town, I'm really aware that the uh, 18 through 23 year olds, 10 blocks down the road at the University of Illinois, are being told that um, Preaching is, the things like preaching are oppressive and, and, and backward and systematically wrong. Preaching is out of season at the moment, out of the church and in the church. I haven't done a survey, but a lot, or perhaps even just too much, evangelical preaching today deals with how to have a better marriage, how to have better finances, how to have better teenagers. Now, those things are important, but you can go to any Barnes & Noble and find 15 books on all those topics. Isn't preaching 
supposed to do something else. John Piper says that in his preaching, he doesn't aim to be immediately applicable, but eternally useful. Biblical preaching doesn't necessarily change your marriage by Tuesday, but it does give you things you'll be singing about in 10 million years. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, that is, it is the preached word that saves people. It's the preached word that saves people. Spurgeon said that if he was denied the eternal state, but could, if he was denied heaven, but could still choose his eternal state, he would choose the feeling he gets when he's preaching the gospel. We... We sacrifice so much in the pulpit, not just in the congregation, but in the pulpit when we turn preaching into helpful life advice. It's the preached word that saves people. Preaching isn't, here's something that the Bible tells you to do later. Preaching is, this is who Jesus is for you now. Preaching is, come and receive Jesus now. Preaching is give your heart to Jesus now. Preaching isn't just information download. That's why we should maybe be careful about always encouraging people to take notes in a sermon. Someone told me when I was in college, uh, take notes if you can, but pray that you can't. Take notes if you can, but pray that God the Holy Spirit so captures your heart during preaching that you forget all about your notes. I was a, a pastor uh, in Richmond, Virginia for a few years before we moved to Champaign and, and that, that was a church with some diligent note takers and, and I, I loved that but two or three times I noticed some of those note takers had put their pens down and were just listening and I thought, alright, we're preaching now. <laughs> preaching isn't Preaching isn't information download. Preaching is, is the parading of the glory of God to feed people who are starving for it, even if they don't know they're starving for it. Yes, we, we've got to help people raise their kids to love the Lord. We, we've got to help husbands and wives navigate a society that hates their marriage. We've got to help people spend and give responsibly. I'm a church planner. I, I get that right? But, but the, the root and the answer to all those problems is, is the glory of God coming through the preached word. We see this in Acts 13 in uh, Paul's sermon in Antioch uh, of Pisidia. Um, uh, Paul's preaching in the synagogue and in almost every verse of this sermon in Acts 13, uh, Paul is talking about God's action in history. God did this. God did that. God raised up David. God sent you in to exile. It is God's glory that's the main focus of Paul's sermon in Antioch. Even when Paul turns his attention to John the Baptist, he, he quotes a line from his ministry that most memorably turns attention and focus to the Lord Jesus. In verse 27 of Acts 13, Paul tells us that those who did not believe the message from the Old Testament about God fulfilled that message by condemning Jesus. This whole sermon focuses on God's work, God's action. God is at the centre. God is the focus. 
in every statement we have of Paul's message from Antioch in Pisidia, we see God giving himself to his people for his glory and our goods. In this message, Paul offers this God to these people. Champagne is full of false gods. A false version of Jesus? Because you know the closer you get to a coast or a campus, the more liberal the churches tend to get. But, but also false versions of the good life. False versions of comfort and meaning. But when we open up the Bible, we offer God to our people. That's preaching. Number two, communion. The Free Will Baptist Treatise says that communion is a commemoration of the death of Christ for our sins in the use of bread, which he made the emblem of his broken body, and the cup, the emblem of his shed blood. By it, the believer expresses his love for Christ, his faith and hope in him, and pledges to him perpetual fidelity. It is the privilege and duty of all who have spiritual union with Christ to commemorate his death. And no man has a right to forbid these tokens to the least of his disciples when we take the Lord's Supper or communion together, end quote. Communion is, the vis- is a visible word from God. Communion is a visible word from God reminding us of his love for us in giving his body and blood for us. Communion is a gospel presentation. We commit ourselves to God by committing ourselves to what he has given us. He has given us himself. God is always giving himself to us. We are physical and forgetful. We are physical and forgetful. And because the Lord loves us, he's given us a physical reminder of his grace. Think with me for a second about the relationship between God and food. Tim Chester, in his commentary on Luke, says that the Lord Jesus is always going to or from a meal in Luke's gospel. That's the sort of religion I can get down with. All right? I like that. But, but, but that, this theme of, of God using physical reminders runs through the Bible. If someone asks you, what's the first commandment in Genesis? What do you say? What's the first thing that God tells Adam and Eve to do? I wonder how many of your answers started with the word don't. Don't eat from the tree. But actually, that's the second commandment. The first thing God tells Adam and Eve to do is eat. Genesis 2.16, the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Of every tree of the garden you may eat, eat. Go and eat and satisfy yourself. Go and eat and enjoy my goodness as you eat. The first thing God tells Adam and Eve to do is eat. The first thing God does is give. The prohibition of verse 17 is only given in the context of the good command in verse 16. God is the greatest giver. We see this again clearly in Exodus 24. Exodus 24, uh, the people of Israel commit themselves to keep all the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 24, 11, we're told they saw God and did eat and drink. They saw God and they ate and drank. 
Now, if, you're gonna, if, if you ask me to pass out exactly what that means, I don't know. But the key is in what it tells us, right? They saw God and they ate and drank together. Committing themselves to God was committing themselves to what he gave them. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells the crowds that he's the bread of God. He says, your forefathers, the children of Israel, were given manna, uh, but we've been given Jesus. Sufficient sustenance for our wilderness wanderings. Think about the Last Supper. The last night that the Lord Jesus had with his disciples before the crucifixion, he didn't set up a classroom. He didn't say, hey, find the guy leading the donkey, follow him to the local school, set up some tables and chairs and a whiteboard, and we'll be good to go. No, he set up a meal. And of course, particularly in John's account of the Last Supper, there are some of the, the deepest, richest, most satisfying, we'll need eternity to understand it, teaching in the whole Bible as, as the Lord unpacks the Trinity. But these things happened in the context of a meal. The Lord taught the Twelve that as they had been given food for physical life, so the Lord would give them himself for spiritual life. That's why we celebrate communion, because God is the greatest giver. What does Jesus tell his disciples after the resurrection? After the resurrection, John 21, 12, Jesus says, let's go change the world, boys. No, he doesn't. He says, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Peter's fishing. You know the story. Jumps in the water. He wants to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. They've been fishing. But did you ever notice when they show up at the fire, Jesus has already got the fish cooking. Because God is the greatest giver. Jesus tells us in Luke 22.30 that after judgment, what's the first thing we do? A marriage supper. We'll eat and drink at his table. And this is a never-ending supply. Psalm 65.11 tells us, You crown the year with bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. If you live on or near farmland, you know that wagon tracks are not the place where things grow. They're dry, pressed down, desiccated, dead earth. They've been crushed by the wagon. God's goodness is so rich. His abundance is so full that even his wagon tracks overflow with abundance. I'll be honest, brothers and sisters, communion Sundays are a great comfort to me as a preacher because I know even on those Sundays where my preaching is miserable, people are still leaving church with a clear gospel presentation. We celebrated communion two weeks ago and I just went home with such a deep sense of satisfaction knowing that through the elements God had spoken the gospel to our church. Scottish theologian Robert Bruce says this, quote, we get no other thing in communion than we get in the word. We get no other thing in communion than we get in the Word. Content yourself with this, he says. But if this is so, communion is not superfluous. Even if you get that same thing that you get in the Word, yet you get that same thing better. You get a better grip on the same thing in communion than you got by hearing the words. 
God has more room in your soul through receiving the sacraments than he otherwise could have by hearing the word only. Now that's a challenging quote in our tradition. But often think about Luke 24, 35. You know the story of Luke 24. Simon, the other disciple, are leaving town. They're going back to, it's over. Jesus is dead. Jesus comes, beginning with Moses. He unpacks the whole Old Testament to them. And then the two go back to the rest. And in Luke 24, 35, they don't say, Jesus revealed himself to us with this great Bible study. No, Luke 24, 35 says that Jesus revealed himself to them in the breaking of the bread. Baptism. The Free Will Baptist Treatise tells us that baptism is the immersion of believers in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in which are represented the burial and resurrection of Christ, the death of Christians to the world, the washing of their souls from the pollution of sin, their rising to the newness of life, their engagement to serve God, and their resurrection on the last day. End quote. Apparently Martin Luther, the great German reformer, wrote, I am baptised on his desk. Now this was not because he confused water baptism with salvation, but to remind himself that he was dead to sin, identified with Jesus, and given new life. Just as the children of Israel went out of Egypt into the water and out of the water into the promised land, so we leave our old life in the water and we come out of the water to new life. I find remembering my baptism surprisingly helpful in the battle against temptation. When temptation comes, I fight to say to myself, I've been baptised. I am dead to sin. I grew up in a house near a, gra near a graveyard, like that close to a graveyard, right? Uh, uh, friends, I'm here to tell you, dead people can't do anything for you. They never helped me with my chores, never did my homework. We're dead to sin. We don't have to do what it tells us to do. Baptism services, when you see a new believer committing their lives to Christ, uh, some of the most thrilling and exciting days in our ministry. Well, what about gathered worship? What about gathered worship? Sometimes, in fact, quite often, as, as Rachel will tell you, I, I'm given to lament the fact that I live in the generation where people sit at home watching a live stream and call it, church. Now we all did that because we had to a few years ago. Preaching in an empty sanctuary to a camera was the most miserable experience of my entire life. But, but no part of the Christian life has suffered more from our race to the lowest common denominator than church attendance. But if some worship is only supposed to produce feelings, and if preaching is only the downloading of information, can we blame people for staying at home? Why should I come to church is a question that, if we're honest, most of us have struggled to answer. 
Calvin says, just as we go to church to meet with God, he comes to church to meet with us. It is at church we meet with God. Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the garden, to gather the lilies. The, the bride knows where her husband is. We know where God is. We must meet him at church. A robust understanding of the means of grace remind us that God does things at church he has chosen not to do anywhere else. God does things in the gathered, shaped by the word, filled by the spirit, community of believers that he has chosen not to do anywhere else. Gathered worship demonstrates that we have different priorities from the world around us. Gathered worship reminds us that Sunday isn't just a second Saturday. Gathered worship reminds us that the Sunday isn't just sort of a pre-Monday. Gathered worship reminds us and testifies to the fact that Sunday is the Lord's Day. Ray Ortland, perhaps with his tongue slightly in his cheek, points out that if we really understood Sunday, we'd all get an extra seven and a half weeks of vacation every year for free. Because Sunday is the day we rest in the Lord's. But our faith can't just be a Sunday habit. Your pastor's faith, your pastor's preaching won't sustain you six days a week. And that is where we remember that the Bible is a great gift. We must read the Bible faithfully. We must read the Bible systematically. Bible reading must be a part of our daily routine because to leave the Bible out is to leave God out. In a world of selfishness and emptiness, and vanity, the Bible reminds us what is true and real. The Word of God shapes our loves because ultimately we are what we love. In the Word of God, we meet the God of the words. And as we read the Scriptures, we fight the temptation to oppose the incarnate word against the inscripturated word. The more you read the Old Testament, the more the Lord Jesus looks exactly how you would imagine the incarnate God of the Old Testament would look. The more you read Paul, the more you understand how daft it is that people say, well, Paul said that, but Jesus never said it. No, 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 no. It's the word of God. If, if Paul said it, Jesus said it. If Moses said it, Jesus said it. I think we should print all the words in red or none of them but if you disagree with me I'm only 38 I'm young enough that you can just ignore me and it's fine <laughs> now there's a there's a problem with personal bible reading isn't there personal bible reading simply has not been an option for the majority of Christians until the last 300 years and frankly maybe even today for the majority of Christians personal bible reading is not an option. So we must be careful not to make something that is unavailable to most of our brothers and sisters through time and space the sole marker of Christian maturity. But 
I think those brothers and sisters from the past and those brothers and sisters in creative access countries today would be shocked at our lack of commitment to the Bible given the opportunities that we have today. I know that when, when the world shut down during COVID, I, I read Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on Romans and those things kept me alive. I, I come from a long line of people very happily uh, sitting in a quiet room with a book but COVID was hard for us and the Lord used the word to keep us alive. What about prayer? Now, if you could sit quietly in a room with me in the morning when I'm praying, you would understand I'm the last person to tell you anything about prayer. But it always strikes me that the disciples asked the Lord Jesus to teach them how to pray I'd want to know how to feed 5,000. I'd want to know how to walk on water. I'd want to know how to climb a mountain and see Moses and Elijah. But apparently when you're physically with Jesus, the most extraordinary thing was not the miracles, but the prayer life. Today for you and me, the most extraordinary thing is that the Lord Jesus is praying for us. The Lord Jesus is our advocate the holy spirit intercedes for us friends two persons of the godhead are praying for you right now it's in prayer that we learn not to seek the stuff but to seek the savior prayer is the promise that what jesus is doing everywhere for everyone he's also doing personally for you prayer is the promise that god himself is at the ends of every prayer. Jonathan Edwards wrote, it's apparent from the word of God that God often tries the faith and patience of his people. When they are crying out to him for some great and important mercy by withholding that mercy for a season. Why is that? Well, so the prayer works on us. I imagine, well, I shouldn't speak for you. My life would be radically worse if I'd got everything I prayed for as soon as I got it. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. God loves us and he makes us wait in prayer. Prayer works on us so that he might be more precious to us. Because at the end of all our wants is God. It is God who we really need. God who we really want. And the God who loves us too much to give us everything we, need, we want the moment we want it. So let's think quickly about two objections to all this and then we'll close together. Objection number one, isn't this all a little bit Roman Catholic? We're free will Baptists. We, we don't believe in the, in the sacrament stuff. Well, the means of grace are the ordinary way in which the Lord Jesus gives himself, himself to the church. We're not trying to find an experience as we uh, enjoy the means of grace. We're trying to find Jesus. We're not trying to get a thing. We're trying to get Jesus. We don't want brownie points. We want Jesus. We're not trying to earn grace. We're trying to enjoy it. To go back to our earlier illustration, going outside doesn't make the stars appear. But if we want to see the stars, we have to go outside. Understanding the means of grace protects us from that Roman Catholic error because it focuses our attention not on communion, but on Jesus. 
John Owen says, the great inquiry of the souls of believers is after Jesus. As much as they find of him, so much refreshment they have. We're not looking for grace detached from Jesus. We're looking for Jesus. For the God who loves to give himself to us. Objection number two. Doesn't this put God in a box? Well, Hebrews 6.3 is the banner over all our Christian growth, isn't it? Hebrews 6.3 says, we will do these things, take a deep breath, if God permits. If God permits. Again, John Owen has this to say about how the means of grace work. He says, it often falls out in our relationship with God that when private and public means fail, and the soul has nothing left but waiting silently and walking humbly, then Christ appears, that his doing so may evidently be of grace. Let us not at any time give over in this condition. When all ways are past, when the summer and harvest gone without relief, when neither bed nor watchman can assist, let us wait a little, and we shall see the salvation of God's. Christ honours his immediate, absolute actions sometimes, though ordinarily he crowns his ordinances. Christ often manifests himself immediately out of all ordinances to them that wait for him in them. That he will do to them that despise them I know not, though he will meet men unexpectedly in his way, he will not meet them at all out of it. Let us wait as he has appointed, and let him appear as he pleases. So what is John Owen saying there in his slightly tortured 17th century English? He tells us Christ is promised in the means of grace. Christ is promised in the means of grace. He's not bound by the means of grace. If Christ doesn't appear to us in the means of grace, he can, of course, appear to us outside of the means of grace, but only those who honour him by seeking him where he is. Christ can appear to us anywhere, but he seems only to appear to those of us, to those who look for him where he is. Of course, the Lord Jesus can strike you with spiritual insight while you're watching TV, but that's unlikely if you're regularly neglecting your Bible. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works. We must work because God is at work. Christian growth isn't mechanical or magical. Christian growth isn't mechanical. We don't put a coin in the slot and get out a portion of grace. Christian growth isn't magical. It doesn't happen while we're skipping church and neglecting the Bible. And then finally as we close... Why is resting in God's way of doing God's work so important? Pastor Nick Batsik wonders if the attraction of, of smells and bells orthodoxy is down to a generation who have been taught to live off camp highs rather than normal, everyday Christian faith. We teach teenagers, and I, I used to love taking teenagers to camp, but we teach teenagers to be Christians at a Christian camp in the middle of summer. What they need is 
How can I be faithful to Jesus on a wet, cold Tuesday morning? We spent a generation, we've told a generation, you don't have to come to church to be a Christian. And they turned around and said, oh, all right then, we'll stop coming to church. They see nothing more in church than in their personal Bible reading, their coffee dates or their playlists. And of course, when they ditch the church, they've taken that first step towards ditching the Lord's. We must recover the ordinary ways in which Jesus gives himself to his people. We must recover these ordinary ways for the protection and authenticity of our ministry. Brian Rhodes says, either you are content with the ordinary means of grace or you find yourself constantly needing to spice up your ministry to keep it hyped and edgy. Shock becomes your sacraments. We'll either have God's means of growth or the world's means of growth. John Wesley said that he keeps two days in mind, this day and that day, this day and judgment day. The enchantment of our secular age tempts us only to focus on this day. But the means of grace work to disenchant us, to remind us that outside of our apparently closed system is real truth and real beauty, to remind us that outside our apparently closed system is something worth dying for and something worth living for. These are the ways in which the Lord Jesus has given himself to us for his glory and our good. Let's not be too proud and too modern and in too much of a hurry to receive them. Let's remember these good gifts, recover their importance, rest in God's plan and receive him. As God promises in Psalm 81.10, open your mouth and I will fill it with good things. Open your mouth and I will fill it with good things. What a great promise from God, our great giver.